You are listening to Mike Seminary and Friends, a Q1 Network production. Well, I'm back. I should say we're back. You know, technically, this is really a team effort. You really hear me the majority of the time, but behind the scenes, this show doesn't happen. Mike Seminary and Friends, the podcast, doesn't happen for it not for my wife, Deb. She was the person that gave me the idea. She works hard behind the scenes doing all the editing. And you can imagine how frustrating that could be when you have to deal with me. So we needed to take a break, particularly my wife, and now we're back. And I told you and promised, I think, that when we're back, I have just some wonderful guests lined up. And today, I'm really, really excited for a variety of reasons to to kind of tee this up. You can hardly go a day where in the news there isn't a story about someone that has committed some type of a fraud, small scale, big scale. You know, it could be Sam Bankman Freed or somebody local. And I'm of the opinion that it isn't going to get better anytime soon. And that's because probably because of technology. Technology, as wonderful as it is, gives people that don't have the best intentions for others the ability to use it in ways that probably isn't healthy for a lot of folks. And today I have a guest that I've known for some time, not really well. Actually, I know his wife better than I know him, that has quite a remarkable background that led him to start his own investigation businesses. And that's what we're going to talk about in large part today. But let me give you a little bit of Frank's background. First of all, he retired from the United States Marine Corps as lieutenant colonel in that capacity during the Gulf War. He led a team, a company of 170 Marines while he was there. He retired from the FBI after 25 years with a wonderful career where he was involved in some of the most interesting cases that I know of. One of them is really near and dear to a lot of North Dakotans. In fact, Frank won an award from the Bismarck Tribune on this case, where he helped crack the Jamaican one of the Jamaican fraud cases. Uh, he's originally from New York, now living in North Dakota. I want to thank him first for his uh, career and service to our country. God bless him for that. We'll also talk about it, his family. He retired from the FBI not too long ago and started his own company, Gasper, that's G-A-S-P-E-R Investigations. He has a website, gasperinvestigations.com. And so I'm just honored and thrilled and excited to have Frank Francis, birth name, Frank Gasper as my guest from, and he's the principal of Gasper Investigations. Frank, welcome to Mike Seminary and Friends. It's great to see you. How are you? Mike, first of all, thank you for that introduction. I appreciate it. I, I was looking around my shoulder. Am I actually that person? <laughs> well, thank you very much for those kind words. I'm doing very well. How about yourself? I'm I'm great. Thank you. As, as you're aware, my wife and I were uh, 
away from North Dakota for almost two months. We were in a bit warmer climate. So it's always nice, as Dorothy says from The Wizard of Oz, there's no place like home. Um, my first outdoor run when I got back was eight below with some wind, and I felt like I was home. It was a little different than the 70, 75 degree with humidity where I had been running for almost two months. So it's great to be home. Well, Frank, I, I want to start scratching some of your background. I won't go into great detail unless you want to. In an effort to talk about the importance of your company, Gasper Investigations. Um, first of all, you, you grew up in New York. You finished high school, graduated cum laude, and you go to college. And Yes, I, I, I will say I... I graduated cum laude from college. High school, I I wish I had spent more time uh, on my studies in high school, but I did learn in college to buckle down and really work. <laughs> Thank you for correcting me. Um, and that, th then you went into the Marines. That's so, correct. So my first question is, you're you're a obviously accomplished guy, smart guy. Yeah. You probably like a lot of us didn't focus quite like you could have in high school, but you clearly did in college. Where did the idea of entering the armed forces, becoming a Marine, where did, when did that come into play for you? I, I think it's probably started in junior high school, but I think in high school, I went, I eventually went to Catholic, uh, I graduated from a Catholic high school had uh, gone to public school up to 11th grade. And I think, uh, and prior to that, I worked, uh, believe it or not, I, I ran for a COIO team, which is Catholic youth organizations. And I think it really started there, the idea of service. And then I went from high school, I went to college. Uh, high school, I had a Franciscan brothers in college. I went to Manhattan College, it was a Christian brothers. And I think the idea of service came from really from that background. Did you say Christian brothers? That's right. Manhattan College is a Christian brothers school. <laughs> I graduated from a high school that was run by the Christian Brothers. No, oh, I did really. not know that. Oh, yeah. It, uh, in Fargo, Fargo Shanley, run by the Christian Brothers that were actually out of St. Paul, Minnesota. So we have a lot in common. We'll talk about that a whole nother time. But um, so now that, by the way, that makes sense to me. I totally get it. So you, you, you go to the Marines. T talk a little bit about that period of time before we switch back to your decision to go to law school. I spent my four years, originally my four years on active duty. Uh, I was an infantry officer. Um, uh, during the time in Marine Corps, I, you know, I, I've learned a lot in Marine Corps. I mean, I, I, I heard um, Zell Miller, former governor of Georgia, once say, everything I learned in life, I needed to learn in life, I learned in the Marine Corps. And I, I am a, a convert, to, convert to that. I do believe that because it, it, it taught me leadership. It taught me how to take care of other people, to understand the importance of other people and the importance to set the example. So I, I think the Marine Corps was a is a tremendous organization. And uh, I uh, credit it to a lot of, lot of whatever I accomplished in life. A lot of it, I think I have to credit the Marine Corps for it. And where did the concept of law school uh, become of interest um, to you? You know, I was 
when the time I was on active duty, I, I never had the idea I was going to spend 20 years on active duty. And I wanted to take a look around. I've, I was always interested in, believe it or not, I, I was also thinking about becoming a police officer. And I remember um, it was, I was always interested in that kind of, that kind of job. You know, I remember taking one of these, when you're in high school, take one of these career tests and it seemed like, believe it, it was law enforcement and the military or the two things that came out. And not that I followed that because of that, but that's my interest was. And um, I was in, uh, I decided instead of trying to become a, uh, a New York City police officer, I thought I wanted to become a, uh, an attorney with an idea, believe it or not, of also doing more of an investigator. I wanted to go to court, but I also wanted to be more of an investigator. And so while I was in uh, Okinawa doing a year tour there, I applied to law school. Uh, and eventually, um, at that time, it was a little different than it is now. The communications was a lot diff more difficult, everything done by mail and so forth. But took the LSATs and, and got into law school. By the way, you, I'm not going to go into great detail of his bio. A lot of it is on his website, gasperinvestigations.com. So I'm going to jump ahead to something person that has Italian heritage and has paid attention to a lot of things in the East because my father was from the East. While you were in New York working for the FBI, you were working on one of the five crime families in New York, the Bonanos. Bonanos. Did I say that correctly? The Bonanos, yes. Yeah. You did. And, and the reason I want to jump right to that there are very few names in American organized crime, particularly of the Italian persuasion, that are more pronounced or, or more prolific because they were, maybe still are, I don't know, pretty brutal family. What did you learn as you were working on investigating that family and the other things you were doing at that time? You know, one of the big things I I learned is that the, portrayed in movies and uh, television shows of organized crime and sort of code of honor and stuff like that, people, TV, that's not the way it really is. What, what, what I found what organized crime was, for the most part, was people who take advantage of other people because they're, they're in a compromising position. A lot of times organized crime is um, somebody uh, and individuals are committing crimes themselves and more powerful people who are powerful in the sense of violently will come in and basically uh, take over their business or extort money from these people. If you're doing something illegal, you can't go to the police. So that's how that's what organized crime is really about is. The idea is you is that a organization of people are violent, uh, basically run a protection racket with other with people who are committing some kind of possibly illegal activity or some or immoral activity or something where they they can't get it out. They can't go to the authorities, and so they need protection from other people, other supposed organized crime people. In this case, other families. 
so they they align with certain members of a crime family you pay them money in order to protect them mm-hmm. uh and that's really what organized the other thing is that most of the individuals i found who were involved in organized crime they may have stolen a lot of money or might have made a lot of money but they don't necessarily have a lot of money because their lifestyle tends to whatever they get it goes out again so they constantly need to earn uh and what i mean by that is that they, when you have girlfriends or you know you have a family then you have girlfriends and you're going out every night and so forth you it that costs money that co- you know so whatever you they tend to um not big savers because you know the sense that somebody's going to come in law enforcement come in and take it so you you have it spend it what you what you have now don't worry about tomorrow you're going to earn tomorrow hmm. and that's what i found is that yeah, he use you know. I there's a couple of words I could use. I, they just um, I, I I'll use it really. Anyway, broke dicks. I mean, literally, they they don't. I mean, a lot of times they don't have two nickels together. You know, mm-hmm. when they're between scores or whatever, so they don't need money. And that's what I found the biggest difference in that and uh, what you see in the see in um, on the movies and so forth. And this idea mm-hmm. of honor is that there is no honor among thieves. That is <laughs> that is true. There's no honor among these, and these guys have no honor at all. Before we move on from that, Frank, and thanks for the, the sharing the details, the 2019 uh, award that you received from the United States Attorney Generals for Fraud Prevention, shutting down a million-dollar operation that were t- targeting elderly in the United States and Canada, was that attached to the Bonanno family? Was it? Was that? No, that, that was. Case? No, it's not. It that has to do with. Um, other organized crime, but that that occurs in Jamaica, and that in the case on it, um, most of my case occurred in Jamaica with uh, individuals who were targeted elderly people. But there's other part of that same scam. There will be different groups in Costa Rica and Israel and the Dominican Republic who are based in Costa Rica, Jamaica, Dominican Republic, and Israel, which will target the elderly with in a in scams and they um they all the the common denominator of all those four different organizations all, all those four regions and four um the, the number of organizations in those countries is that they use the same list the lead list providers who are american based and knownly sell the names and contact information of these elderly people, knowing that they're going to be targeted for these scams. I remember that case now moving to North Dakota. I remember that case well. It was covered, I thought, pretty darn well by local media, particularly the Bismarck Tribune. Um, it was also so relevant because who wasn't receiving emails about some kind of a scam from Jamaica back in those back in those days, it was so prevalent, and I particularly remember the name of that Sanjay Williams. And going back to what you just talked about, because he was, I think, the lead guy that was providing the people that were really committing the fraud, the scam, providing the lead generation, if you will. How, how did those guys do that? How, how did, 
how did they gather all this information on individuals then to provide it to the people that are actually doing the scam? If if you can talk about that. Yeah, no, it, it's it yeah, it's up there. Sanjay was a lead list provider in Jamaica who obtained his lead list from lead list providers in the United States. The lead list providers in the United States, and I'll they've been some of them have been convicted. And I can talk to them. There's a guy named Bill Nannery, um, uh, uh, a guy named Pavone, a guy named De Prima. Um, and what they did, they worked with, um, and a guy named Ron Molesky. Um, what they worked with, with these mailing, these almost scam mails themselves, but it would happen at these supposed sweepstake mailers. And those are, you know, post office mails these things out. It will allow these people to mail these sweepstakes out. Uh, and they'll send uh, sweepstakes to targeting elderly, almost always elderly people. Uh, they target elderly people. They send a sweepstakes, hey, you won $5 million. Oh, you won, you, you're a winner. Please send in this return. And um, people then, fill out this form and send it on in. And that form, of course, as I say, you won. And a lot of times you won and it would be a dollar. But what they've done with that, um, and, um, if they've sent it all, it would be a, a check for a dollar, even though the, the mail is deceiving in the sense it's, it will say $5 million or whatever, and it turns out it's a dollar. Um, they take that coupon, which it, people have filled out, which will have their contact information on, and they will sell in two different ways. They will actually sell the the, uh, the coupon itself, what they called, um, and that's what's called a hard copy lead. Uh, they will sell those hard copy leads anywhere from five to ten dollars a piece. Uh, they um, mm -hmm. these lead list providers get them from the sweepstakes guys, and then they also have a data leads. They take that same information and they put it in a computer and there's the data list. And they would, it will have the telephone numbers, the the name, address, and telephone numbers of these individuals who filled it out. So they're those people are already pre, they predisposed to being fraud because they've already thought they've won a lottery. They've they've mailed this entry in. They think they've entered. In some cases, they think they've already won. So they're already predisposed. So now these uh, these names and coupons are then sold to these um, scammers in these different locations. And these, these same coupons might be sold five or 10 times. And the data might be sold 10 to 15 times. So you, if, you figure, if you do the math, we're talking about maybe 20 or 25 different groups will have these names of these individuals. So they, these 25 groups will be calling these individuals every single day. So these individuals get these calls. And after a while, I mean, they, their phones are all day long, their phone rings with a different, you know, and then the trick is just for the scammers is to be able to convince socially engineer these people to think they've won and then get their background and use their background while they're talking to them to get them to engage and get them to send money. And once they get them to send a little money, they're very good at getting more money and more money out of them. And the other secret about this thing, everybody can be scammed. 
But think it's all, you know, people listening now say, oh, I can't be scammed. I've been doing this long enough. Everybody can't be scammed. The only person who can't be scammed, the person who realized they can be scammed and, and therefore are on mm-hmm. alert to it. Everybody can be scammed, scammed if, if somebody's good enough. <laughs> One of the great takeaways is situational awareness. You, you if your, your first defense is your own. So be very, very careful. You know, as, as you were sharing that information, Frank, I recall many, many times a fellow commissioner, a fr- dear friend of mine, Peril Grossman, who works for Attorney General's office in North Dakota, in that very department, he uh, was many times on TV talking about the latest scam, overwhelming majority of them targeting what we, what we call a, a vulnerable population. For whatever reason, senior citizens are more vulnerable um, than others. It's, it's been going on forever, and it's it's never going to go away, is it? I mean, there there are going to be plenty of people. Thus, the importance of Gasper investigation. There can be plenty of people that are going to find ways to take advantage of another group of folks, right? Absolutely, uh, absolutely. And um, law enforcement only has certain tools that can work. It's hard at a local level to work these cases. To be honest with you, it's almost impossible. And at a federal level, is there's better understanding than it was when I first started this case in 2012 um, than there was now. Because when I first started the case, uh, I got a lot of feedback, um, pushback from management of the of people saying, what, what are you doing? Is, these people are greedy. That's how they, and it, it, no, if you talk to a victim, you realize they're not greedy. I've talked to literally hundreds of people around the country and so, and other, and in other countries too, in Canada and in the UK, who have been victimized by these same groups. And it's not, it's not a matter of, there may be greedy a little bit, but most of the time it's not greed. They gotten, they're vulnerable because certain things happen. These people, Get under the. Uh, I can recall one where an uh, individual who was a b- bank president was talking to me. He said, "You know, I thought I was being scammed, but I had been married to a woman for sixty, my wife for sixty-five years, and she was in a nursing facility. And I, these people got the way they got me was they said, you, you now will have enough money to to give your wife for, of sixty-five years.'" home care. She'll be able to come home. You'll be able to pay for nursing at home. And he said, you know, I thought it was being scanned, but I had to take that chance. And that's uh, all kinds of different stories like that. That I, talk, I, I There's many different reasons why people fall for these things. But that was, you know, I, uh, that, that one always stuck with me. Yeah. Uh, the fact that this man who was, a, who was a bank president, very accomplished person, he, you know, and we're talking upwards of $100,000, this guy, over $100,000, this guy sent, thinking, but, you know, he's, what he thought was, you know, he had to take that chance because he thought could bring his wife home. Mm-hmm. Talk about one more case in general terms before we completely switch gears to uh, your business, Gasper Investigations. And again, gasperinvestigations.com, you'll find that information at MikeSemini.com as well. 
you also, uh, when you moved to North Dakota, by the way, when you left New York and you came to North Dakota, was it immediate? Hey, I love this place. Did you fall in love with North Dakota right away? Um, no, I, I, you know, I'm, I guess because I was in the military, I was used to moving around. I've always, I, home is wherever you are. And I think it was, it was, I, at the time I had four children at home. It was, the schools were very good. It was, I thought it was a good place to bring up a family. Um, and that's why, you know, it because of my, because of family, that's why I think we love, we like the place. We yeah. love the place. It's because of family. Yeah, and it was different. Family. It's different than being on the coast, you know, the East Coast and the West Coast. It's a different part of the country. Uh, yeah, and your family was you know, so involved in Bismarck, too, which is just wonderful, by the way. So you, you, you were involved in some of the fraud on uh, one of the reservations where that it, it's not uncommon for some tribal governments to have um, some nefarious activity because there's such familiar things that are going on. Um, what, what, when you learned about what was going on at, at, at Standing Rock, what were some of the first steps you had to take to uh, work that case to its conclusion? And yeah, I asked that, the, question, I asked that question so we can tee up what you're doing now. Go ahead. Sorry. Okay. You know, I I worked a couple of different um, uh, public corruption cases on Standing Rock. One of them being uh, Housing Authority, and um, taking that and people who were elected officials, and I realized taking a step back. I mean, the the problem. What I found the problem on the on the in tribal governments in Standing Rock. I mean, it was I I worked at was at. Certain points uh, in, in Standing Rock compared to other tribal tribal governments, it's a very good uh, government compared to other governments I've looked at around. But the same, there was isn't the same concept that if you think of uh, in the federal government and then a lot of lo- a lot of large local governments. If you have um, uh, public, um, I'm trying to think of the word um, public ser- um, uh, civil service. The idea is when you I. Uh, with civil services, that even though you have a different government elected, the people who are working in the organization, the lower people, all stay, stay keep their jobs. Uh, where it's the tribal governments, a lot of tribal governments, are still back uh, in a way the federal government was. If people look in the history, until the 1880s, there wasn't that idea of civil service. So you would have one administration leave, another administration come back, and people who worked for the government might lose their positions. And um, without the without the concept of civil service, sometimes because people then um, get into government, they're working for the tribal. In this case, the tribal government. Uh, I had a, a person who was elected once come up to me and was flat out literally told me this: "Is you know what we're gonna." We're in office. We're going to get as much as you can. If you catch us, you catch us. But we're going to get as much as you can. I was, you know, kind of shocked. I was, he told me this outside the housing authority. I was walking in the building. And this was an elected tribal official um, telling me this. And and I, I took it to heart. And, I, you know, after doing some research, you know, doing some historical reading and so forth, I understood 
what he was talking about. The idea is, you know, there's no, people who don't have, you know, governments and so forth. And your job, you know, it could be that when the next election comes, family members are thrown out and um, relationship, friendships, and other people are in, and you're gone. And now you, your subsistence, what do you do? You don't have a job anymore. So I, I that was one of the things that took me when I got a, started looking at um, corruption, um, public corruption down in the reservations. Yeah. So I'm going to talk a little bit about your qualifications so we can weave that into the, the story importance of what you're doing and the types of clients or potential clients that should be reaching out to you. Well, so first of all, you have top security clearance. I don't know if that still applies, but you had top security clearance while you were with the FBI and SCIF, which stands for, and I want you to help me explain exactly what that would mean. Sensitive, uh, uh, complemented information facility. What does that mean exactly? Um, You have to, you have to, everybody in the FBI has top secret clearance. And then there's, there's above top secret, things are top secret, but there's certain compartmentalized, I can't pronounce the word, but certain um, information or techniques or whatever are top secret, but they have, they have the um, uh, SCIF clearance. You have to have this extra clearance in order to, access this this information all these techniques or whatever and that you know incurs additional security checks uh, additional um you take additional I'm trying to think uh every five years a background check but you also give you a polygraph every five years and you have to submit a um, financial disclosure every year just because if you have that kind of access because they want to make sure that you're not giving it to a foreign entity or some sort of other way that would hurt the United. That information could hurt the United States national so, security. So does that mean? I have to dumb it down for me. Does that mean uh, in a is there's a compartmentalized facility where there's actually a facility that it's compartmentalized and you are now qualified because of your background and the tests that you've taken where any part of that facility you're qualified to have clearance to work in it? Is that, am I close? That's correct. Yes. There's a, there's, there is a facility and inside those facilities and, and, and that it, it's the big thing is the access to the information that's contained therein. Some of it may be documents. Some of it may be on a, you know, digital or some of it may be some other technique or something else that we, that we might have. So your core skills, they're included, but they're not limited to complex litigation and financial criminal investigation, uh, forensic toolkit, cybersecurity investigations, which I can only imagine that's only going to just continue to explode because of technology and the times that we're in legal and financial analysis and suspicious activity report. Those skill sets that you have as it relates to now the the, the private sector or, or government, I, I imagine you can work for 
private clients or public clients as well. What are some of the um, most logical client types that you can work for, serve now, or should be considering, I should call Frank Gasper? Who are some of them uh, or what are some of them? I I might I think my target um clients would be financial institutions, attorneys engaged in civil litigation, attorneys engaged in white collar defense, uh attorneys engaged in, in criminal defense. I do you know do that. Professional licensing agencies, uh such as dentists, doctors, lawyers, uh corporations. Um, startup companies, and uh, uh, and for, and also tribal governments, I, and and I can I can do other governments too. I, mean, I happen to have tribal some tribal clients, but uh, you know, if there's uh, investigations need to be done uh, for uh, employee malfeasance or certain things that gone on on local state governments, I. If they want somebody from the outside who has some expertise, I I would be the you see the a lot of times they hire large law firms to do those investigations. Um, but I I would be qualified. I am a licensed attorney in New York, but I've also had you know extensive investigative experience with the FBI. Let's thank you, Frank. Let's take two or three of those, and let's start with the. Uh, financial uh piece there there isn't a day that that maybe that's an exaggeration there clearly isn't a week that goes by where there isn't at least one new news story about some type of financial corruption case that that is surfacing and that and it's just, I think, going to get worse. At what point along a spectrum um, timeline sh- should somebody be reaching out to you? Where, where there's what, what kind of a red flag should they be looking for? Where they say, "I need somebody to help me" in terms of financial fraud or corruption in an entity. If that makes sense, the way I ask that question. Yeah, I, I mean, a lot of times. Uh... You know, I'm just thinking off the top of my head, but, um, you know, you have entities or corporations and uh, a lot of times it has to do with where people embezzle money or get money out. It would be to submit fraudulent um, billings. That's that's the easiest way to investment happens is um, somebody sets up in a somebody who has access to that company. Uh, stuff. It may be an employee of the company. It may be a contractor of the company. Sets up uh, has, but has access to the uh, for, to, to paying bills. Sets up a fraudulent company that submits invoices to that company for work not performed or services not rendered, and then those those bills are then paid. And until somebody really gets down into the you know weeds of that invoice of those invoices those fraudulent invoices you wouldn't know because an audit a regular audit wouldn't detect those because they'll say hey wait a second here we have we have a uh, a bill for a service rendered it looks like 
it's a company that's uh, and unless somebody actually looks for that service, uh, you know, it 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 makes the the debits and credits of that organization look fine because hey, wait a second, we have this is somebody has contributed to this supposedly has contributed to this organization by performing some service and now we're paying for it. But the other thing way to do is uh, inflate. The other way they do is inflate um, uh, bills. Um, I remember once I was uh, did a case when I was in the FBI where a hotel, a guy who operated a hotel, uh, a number of hotels, he managed the hotels for a, a group of, an investor group, which he was part of, what he did is uh, to steal from the hotel and also steal on um, tax purposes. He would um, say they would uh, purchase 150 bit large screens televisions. And, he, and they might only purchase 25, but they inflated and put 125. He took that money for the 125 uh, televisions that weren't uh, purchased. And that money was then given to a person who then helped him build a um, a pool house on his $5 million house. He put a, a pool and then a pool house, probably a million dollars there, he took out of these hotels by doing that fraudulent scheme. And that's that's the type, that that that's the easiest way or, and the most common way people do embezzle uh, from entities, both mm-hmm. government and from private entities. You mentioned startups, which are something near and dear to me because of my background and um, some of the things I continue to do after retirement. Startups are very, very important. When you say startups, um, kind of describe where the nefarious activities in a startup piece is a red flag for you and why somebody might consider giving you a call? Um, I'll have an example of a, 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 a we'll name the startup, and a, but they, it was a startup that had a unique process. We'll just say they had a unique process and I don't want to go the industry that was in, but they needed, you know, all startups, especially if you have a manufacturing type startup, you need capital. So uh, this startup needed capital. You know, guess who, you know, now luckily in the last year it's been uh, put in, but the, the capital that people were, that this startup was looking and was approached by was capital that came from China. And this, you know, the startup was thought, oh, wait, wait a second here, we, we're going to allow, we could really use this money. We have a new process, a new, uh, new product which is great. And we have a, a manufacturing, a brand new robotic manufacturing facility here in the United States. And, um, but the money was to help them get off was people wanting to come from China. Well, what does China want to do with this startup? Does this Chinese company want to make money? You know, is it just the idea investor? Or is it because they want to get the technology, this unique technology that this startup offers and just get in there, get into the startup, you know, have some show money, get them to show them the facility, get them to show them how the process works. And then, lo and behold, that process is 
I'm not saying always. I I, I don't want to generalize. Generalize not always, but many times Chinese um, companies are looking to get technology which they can then basically steal and bring back to China, and they don't need the startup anymore because they've got the tech their startups technology. And then once they get that technology, they don't really need, so that they might give all the money or they might give some of the money or just an idea, show around, but they've now got their, their unique, their unique technology that which they can put together, they can then do in China. And then, you know, the startup, the original startup and they're, they're out. And mm. that kind of, that's an example um, that I've had since I've left the FBI. Frank, how is the rapid advancement and, and, you know, disruptive technologies have been part of our lives for some time now? And, for you know, for the most part, technology introduction and what it can do for us is a good thing. But in the hands of the wrong people, of course, people that uh, don't have the best interests for others in mind, it can be really challenging for us. How, how is the rapid growth and advancement of technology in the cyber world impacting your work and the the client types that probably should be working with you? How is that impacting what you do and why they should be calling you? Um. It met, I don't know necessarily myself. I, if I was, and I would always recommend a client. I would, somebody would call me. I would I would give them advice on what to do. But I'd also always would recommend hiring a a cyber a, um, people who you know much smarter than I, who much more a technological background than I have. Uh, to come in and help them out. And I'll give you an example. Um, I had um, a, um, a small engineering firm in, um, and not, not, not only that small, but an engineering firm in um, in North Dakota uh, while I was um, an agent. They uh, suffered a computer intrusion where somebody got in their email and then eventually, uh, basically, got into an email and was able to steal about $350,000 from the company and almost stole another $350,000 from the company just by getting into their, you know, by sending, um, getting into their system via their email and then um, um, reading their emails, figuring out, um, spending the time thinking about it, how much time they spent reading company emails or figure out who the players were in the company, uh, and then targeting, um, sending certain emails that uh, by changing the um, protocols on the founders and the two principals email um, email boxes inboxes and also and their sent boxes and also. Their, their controller of the company's uh, um, email accounts. They were able to send emails and able to get the uh, controller to send, you know, uh, these 300, eventually I think it was three checks or 
two of the three checks, I don't remember exactly the number of checks it was, that amounted to $352,000. And all of a sudden, and a month later, almost got them to send another $352,000 um, just by controlling their, um, their the company's um, email account. Uh, and that kind of that kind of stuff is out prevalent. Um, it linked, I mean, everybody's targeted. I think somewhere, I mean, I read somewhere and I've heard somewhere, but 95% of um, traffic, um, like uh, traffic to websites for financial institutions is a, is scammers from all, all over the world trying to get hacked into the, that financial institution's um, financial uh, uh, computer system. You think about that. Ninety-five percent of web traffic is wow. people just trying to get into that financial institution's um, and looking for some sort of a weak link. Um, and you know, when you're talking about large organizations, your, your people, um, you know, do you have an insight in the insider threat? I mean, I think that's something that. It's been that prevalent in the news probably in the last three or four years. Uh, people realize the insider threat, how important that is, yeah. and what do you? How do you combat the insider threat? Well, sometimes you know it's hard, but one of the big things is doing. Make sure you're doing background investigations on your on your employees, employees who have yeah. have access uh, to information. I mean, sometimes you don't. It, yeah, a lot of times it's a a uh, high-level employee, which you have a, you might spend a more, much more, hopefully you spend a little more time uh, investigating before you offer them the position. But even some, you know, depending on the organization, some of the lower-level employees have enough access where they can, they can cause damage to your organization. The big thing is doing a little bit of background on them. Uh, Frank, in a minute, I'm going to ask you to, to give kind of a pitch why people should reach out to you and the best way to reach you. But I'm going okay. to tee it up by saying something first. I've paid attention to, generally speaking, this subject matter for some time for a variety of reasons. And here's one of the things I've learned. There are enough very, very intelligent people that for whatever reason, decide not to go the route and do things that help people that want to provide quality service to others. They want to benefit the community and society. They want to do things for themselves, either because they're greedy, they're not nice, they're evil, whatever the case might be. And I open it that way by saying some of these people are really brilliant and they're, they're a lot smarter than me. They're a lot smarter than a lot of people. And they've made, they're as smart as the Bill Gateses of the world. But they've decided to go the route that causes harm and damage and hardship and heartache and heartbreak for a lot of people. And you can't, you, we can't do some of this on our own. We, we're going to need some help, particularly if we're leaders of people, organizations, private or public, that people that depend on us. And we can easily all be targets. So that being said, Frank, why should people be 
reaching out or paying attention to Frank Gasper and Gasper investigations? What can you provide for them? How should they reach you? And what would you like them to do to, to reach you? Um, one of the things I think the difference between Gasper investigations and other, other firms is that, hey, I bring experience as an attorney. I, I have a lot, I had trial experience as an attorney, as a prosecutor in New York, as an investigator in the FBI. Not only did I do, do a lot of investigations, I also had a lot of cases that went to trial. So I, I help private attorneys, corporations, financial institutions, government entities put cases together. Know, know what evidence out there. I, I I add values to the client. I won't take money from a client just to perform an investigation that will not result in a positive outcome for that client. And I'll evaluate what's going on and I'll figure out if I can help. I probably turn down more work than I accept because I, I'm not here just to take the client's money. Uh, I help clients focus on what would be what's the successful outcome to that client? What's possible? What's what's successful? Have an expertise in determining the best investigative strategy to get the best get the best uh, outcome for the client. You know, I'll tell a certain client. I, you know, recently a client asked me to do um, somebody called me and, and wanted me to do a surveillance on a on another business that was probably performing something illegal or possibly illegal. And I told me, you know, I've done a lot of surveillances as, a, as an agent. Well, what you're talking about, what am I going to, you're going to spend tens of thousands of dollars to do a real good, a, a proper surveillance. And what are you going to get out of it? That somebody exchanged some substance, some it appeared that some person exchanged some substance with somebody else. What does it get you? That doesn't get, that doesn't help you at all. Uh, so I, you know, I, I tell people that, um, I, you know, you know, I, you know, I work with clients to prepare them to engage in complex litigation. I develop information from public resources, public records and non-public records and personal interviews. I've done, you know, 27 years of experience of interviewing people. I know what questions to ask and what not to ask. Uh, Identify, locate, and interview witnesses, victims, employees. Asset locate, um, identify assets and locate assets. You know, a lot of times in litigation, is it worth going after suing somebody? Well, does that person have any? Your purpose is suing somebody is maybe to recover money. Well, you got to have that person you're suing needs to have assets. Otherwise, it's not worth suing them. Even if you win a judgment, the big thing is uh, is always enforcing that judgment. Locate and gather admissible documentary evidence. Um, perform large-scale document reviews to include financial records. I mean, the big thing on most, especially financial cases, there could be hundreds of thousands of documents to be able to figure out how to review. I conduct comprehensive research. And, and the other thing I do is I spend the time both as a prosecutor and as, a, um, as an agent you know, so I prosecuted on a local level, you know, in New York City, in the Queens DA's office. And I prosecuted, I mean, I obviously invested with the FBI on a uh, more of a, uh, a federal level and a more national level. So, hey, provide a, um, advice to clients on law enforcement matters that the client may may have the entity, depending on, hey, this is, you know, law enforcement, you know, that type of stuff. 
And uh, I think, uh, you know, I have loyalty. You know, I have a life of loyalty. You know, I loyalty to the, and my loyalty now is to, to get the best outcome for my client. That's where my loyalty goes to. Mm. And I, I think I've proven that over the years. The best way to reach you is through the website, gasperinvestigations.com? Um, that'll, um, I have in my email, which is uh, frank at gasperinvestigations.com. And you can reach me by by my my phone. Okay. Well, before we wrap this up, Frank, I have I shared this this with you. I think on more than one occasion because of my relationship with your wife. Because I knew Sabina before I I knew you, and so we're friends on Facebook. I have always just taken great pleasure in vicariously being part of your family by her post about your kids. You have a couple pilots in the face. Talk a little bit about your kids, if you don't mind. I, I, as a parent, I get, I like talking about my kids and now my grandson. By the way, talk a little bit about your kids. They're pretty special. Um, my my kids. I mean, I'm I'm I'm, I'm the worst of the proudest dad. To be honest with you, um, one of my license plates on the car that my wife drives is three for four, and the other one is three USNA. I've had I have four children. Three of them have gone to Naval Academy. I all have graduated or I have one still there. And then my fourth child is going to school in Scotland. And she's happy to be the one for four. <laughs> but um, my oldest one is an F-18 pilot in the in the for the uh for the Navy. My oldest daughter is a um is in flight school. She's gonna be a uh uh, naval flight officer at NFO, which if you've seen the movie uh, uh, Top Gun, he she would be the person sitting in the back seat of now the F-18, what uh, weapons systems person. We all call her Goose, you know, short, you know, if you see the first Top Gun, she was the equivalent of Goose. Um, then I have uh, my daughter, my youngest daughter is in Scotland. She's studying history at the U- University of Aberdeen. And then my youngest one, which you might still have the hope that, um, and I'm just teasing my my two other children is that uh, I still have the hope that he's going to do the right, join the right servants, join the Marine Corps. But <laughs> he can do what, and I tell him uh, he can do whatever he wants to do. But he's he's a great kid. He's you know he's different. You know he's all my kids are different in a lot of ways. Um, uh, but. Uh, they're, you know, at the same time, they all have that idea of service. Hopefully, I didn't give it to them, uh, that idea of service. Uh, I think they um, they have that idea. Um, and uh, I'm extremely proud of all, all of them. And my wife, Sabina, I, I have to give the credit. My children are all readers. And that all is because of my wife. My wife is a big reader. She's uh, very disciplined, very... Um, uh, you know, we couple. We always had a couple of rules growing up. Is that uh, one of the things? There's no tattoos. There's no uh, no piercings besides the you know one hole for each you know for the uh, girls. No no none of these crazy piercing. And you you know when you're in high school, there's no drinking. You know none of that alcohol stuff, which I think it's fun. But other you know otherwise we kind of the kids you know we gave them some room. Um, Room and but we also we both set the example for him. I think uh, was the biggest thing. And so we didn't get you know didn't 
get drunk in front of you know in front of the shows and stuff like that. You know, try to set the example for them. But they they all they've been great. I mean, can't I can't say no. I, I, greatest accomplishment in my life is still those four kids. Yeah, I've had the great pleasure today of visiting with Frank Gasper, and as I as you just learned, one of the reasons I a big fan of Sabina's Facebook work is that I get to follow what her kids are doing. Frank, you know, first of all, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for your service to our country, by the way. God bless you for that. And for being an example for your family. You have three kids that are following in your footsteps. Not, not that the one that isn't isn't doing what great things too, but service to country is pretty darn important. Appreciate you so much. Appreciate what you've done for our country. I wish you the best of success in your in, in your company. I, I you have such an impressive background. You've done remarkable things. You know, I got to ask one question. Just occurred to me. In your line of work, there is a darker side of life and society that you've had to work and target, so to speak. Were there times that you had concern for your personal safety or for your family safety, working with some of the, in the areas that you had to work? The, not really. I, the only time I had any issue at all was I had a case involving the mother of an FBI supervisor uh, who I ended up arrested the mother and the stepfather. The stepfather ended up committing suicide. But um, and that was a little bit because I, um, because of the background, the mother, the step, the son who was, who was a supervisor and eventually rose up in the ranks of the FBI. Um, and that was my the only concern. It just a, there was a little bit of that, just because of what happened, uh, because of his position. But otherwise, no. As far as personal safety, no, never, never had any worry about my myself or my family, anybody doing anything harm to him. Right. Well, Frank, thanks so much for joining me. It was a pleasure. I learned so much, and I wish you the best of luck. God bless you and your family. Appreciate you joining me today. Thank you.